0: Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and it's also blood, sweat, and tears. Humbling, exhausting defeats, and this victories altogether. The only phrase in Paul's famous discourse on marriage is that many of us can relate to in Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse 32 is this one. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. That's, that last phrase is the only part that some of us can relate to in terms of marriage. It's a profound mystery. Sometimes, have you, sometimes I have fallen into bed after a long, hard day of trying to understand life and marriage and each other and I can only sigh and say that is a profound mystery at times marriage seems to be like an unsolvable puzzle this is all true and yet there's no relationship between human beings that is greater or more important than marriage Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to us this morning as we look into your word about this most important relationship. Bless our minds with your spirit. Guide us and direct us into avenues of truth. Give us strength to follow in your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in number four in our series about beginnings. We are digging into the first chapters of the book of Genesis and looking for discovering foundational truths for life and following God. That's where they are in the first chapters of Genesis. I have to say I'm grateful to Pastor Steve for his leadership this the past two Sabbaths. I was blessed and inspired as I watched those services online after the fact, not during, but after the fact. And uh, it was encouragement to me, Steve, especially, well, to, to be honest with you, I haven't listened to your first one, God and Country, but I'm going to. But I listened to your second one, and that is the Divided Heart, and I was blessed and encouraged. Thank you. And I know you all were as well. I also was so encouraged with the special music last Sabbath, Mrs. Terry Koch, Mr. Terry Coke, and also, I think it was Michelle Chin that sang. Wow, beautiful music! And also the um, Karen Ekins and her story about um, Lebanon and the bomb shelter and just everything. All the I was just blessed as I as I watched the worship service, and I'm grateful to be a part of a church that um, is just full of inspiring. Stories of people's lives changed by God. Of course, you know, I was on vacation the last couple of weeks and I had just happened to include a couple of photos uh, to here to start out. Uh, my two granddaughters, are: one on the left is going to be three here in a couple days and the one on the right is almost there. Then we had another granddaughter just born and she'll see you there in her nana's lap as well as our one grandson, Bowdoin. So the Kinney clan is growing, and we had such a good time together. And I thought, what better time to show you pictures of my grandkids than with a a Sabbath when we're talking about marriage, huh? That's how it all happens. And uh, so here we go. Some may wonder, why do we devote this time uh, to talk about marriage when our congregation is full of people that aren't in that category? may have been there, but aren't now, may be longing for it, but aren't, or may not be wanting that at all. Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's designed by God, and it's included in the sixth day of creation, and it started with God, so I think we ought to talk about it, number one. Number two, there's no relationship quite like the marriage relationship, and as I said right at the start, it's greater and more important, and than really any relationship that we have here on earth with any human being. A third reason is that all of us, whether we're married or not, we need to have a realistic uh, picture of what marriage is all about. And the Bible gives us that. And finally, the biblical principles that are true in marriage, that are important in this relationship are true in every relationship and so no matter where we are in life no matter what our our relationships that we have this the bible's principles regarding marriage will will be a blessing so so here it is now the sixth day of creation the sun moon and stars are in place the earth is beautiful verdant alive with vegetation and fish birds sea. Uh, um insects and animals and Adam, period. God was aware that Adam needed a partner, a human companion, but man was not aware. And so God began to give Adam a desire. And he did so as recorded here in verses 18 to 20 in chapter Two of Genesis. He sa- it says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. As the animals all paraded before man for naming, I imagine that a deep yearning started and stirred within Adam's heart. A a yearning for some companionship, someone to be like him. And with that emotional need arising in his heart, that same emotional need arises in every human heart. And I just want to ask you this morning, as we worship together, what needs are stirring in your heart this morning? God knows your needs. He knows your needs for friendship. He knows your needs for companionship. He knows your needs for having someone to walk along beside you and share life with you with you, whether that's a marriage partner or a friend. But whatever the case, He knows your needs. And here's a promise that I think that is so apropos. Psalm 37, 4 and 5, it says, Take delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. When you commit your life to God, when you live your life for him. He gives you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart are his desires. God placed that desire in Adam's heart for someone special. And then God fulfilled that desire. The fact that Eve was created after Adam or that Eve was designated as Adam's companion or helper, doesn't mean in any way that she was inferior to Adam. She was his partner. She was his equal. In Genesis 1, 27, it it clarifies this by saying God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God, in his wisdom, created Man and woman, equal. Equal in His sight in every way. And this equality is reflected in the marriage relationship. Husbands and wives relate to each other with respect. They relate to each other in appreciation and understanding that they are equal partners. But that doesn't mean that men and women are the same. They're not at all. But the differences are not contradictory, but complementary. Because of the emotional and physical differences, Eve would supply what Adam lacked, and the same is for Adam, he would supply what Eve lacked. She was a helper suitable for him, but it was true that it was likewise the opposite. He was a helper suitable for her. The same Hebrew word, by the way, that is used there as helper, a helper suitable, is used also in Psalm 46 verse 1. And you know what that says. God is our refuge and strength. So when it describes there Eve as, his, as Adam's helper, it doesn't mean that she's anything less. In fact, it means that somehow her traits and her abilities and gifts were just what was needed in support of Adam, just as God is our refuge and strength and support and help. The term describes her godly, her godly characteristics that would be a part of this relationship and bring it fulfillment. Genesis 2, verse 21 and 22 say, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. In, in God's wisdom, he knew exactly how to meet Adam's emotional needs. He knew exactly what what was necessary. So on the sixth day of creation, God presented Adam with a wife. Woman's creation was not primarily to produce children, although that was part. It wasn't primarily to keep his home or do his bidding, although I'm sure that's a part. Her creation was for the mutual happiness and fulfillment the completion like a father with the bride god himself brings eve to adam that really is the picture it's a beautiful picture and when man sees woman he breaks into poetry genesis 2:23 This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, said Adam, for she was taken out of man. Hebrew experts, when they read this verse in God's word, say that Adam's response was really one of joyous astonishment. That's what he was, he was just absolutely overcome. And in a sense he said, at last I have someone who will be my true companion. Everything in that text proclaims that marriage next to our relationship with God is the most profound relationship there is. And that's why, that's why I think it's true that like knowing God Himself, coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, but rewarding and wondrous, just like it is with knowing God. The most painful, the most wonderful, this biblical understanding of marriage. But here's the challenge that I see and that is that the world doesn't look at it that way. That's not how the world society sees marriage. Over the last 40 years, the what's called the leading in marriage indicators have been steadily in decline. And you know this. The divorce rate today is twice what it was in 1960. Research by the Barna Research Group recently found. Also, unfortunately, sadly, that the rate of divorce among those who are professed born again Christians are, is even greater than those out in society. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents. Today it's 60% and less. In 1960, 72% of all adults were married. Today, it's less than 50%. And all of this shows what we could call an increasing pessimism about marriage in our culture. Traditionally, we've always seen marriage as a framework for a loving devotion and commitment. Today, marriage is more about me it used to be that i set aside me for us not anymore in people's mind today is what they call the time of of me marriage me marriage people are looking for partners who will complement them who will f- fulfill them who will make their life more interesting and help them attain their goals the me marriage The National Marriage Project conducted a study a few years ago, and that study was entitled, Why Men Won't Commit. And in this study, they looked at the factors that were professed by men as to why they wouldn't give themselves to someone in marriage. And they found that men wouldn't marry because they wanted to wait until they found the perfect soulmate. The perfect soulmate. Someone very compatible. Now, what does compatible mean? Well, they studied that in this research. And you might think that, well, it included a whole host of things. But above them all, compatibility meant someone who showed a willingness to take them, the man, as they are and not change them. Now, think about that just for a moment. Marital compatibility is finding a woman who will fit into their life. One man in the research said this, if you are truly compatible, then you don't have to change. Now I expected a few chuckles from that one because that's not what marriage is about, is it? Ladies, I just want to give you a chance here. If there's any man on planet Earth who has no deep needs or flaws. What shall you do? <laughs> Are there any like that? No. Are there any ladies without any deep needs or flaws? No. There aren't either one. If, if there was a man that was perfect. That would be a fine arrangement to have this type of a marriage. Where you don't have to change. The problem is there aren't any of those animals on planet Earth. Marriage is two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, acceptance, and love. That's what marriage is. Now, on the other hand, me-marriage, me-marriage is a marriage based on self-fulfillment, not on self-denial. And that kind of a marriage, as you can imagine, is doomed from the start. Because in the me marriage, in the heart of hearts, everyone, everyone knows that they're not perfect. They may want this, but they know that they have flaws. They know that there's, there's things that need to be changed. And everyone knows that when you really get up close and personal, there are things that need to be adjusted. About each one of us. And you know that that other person needs some adjusting and changes too. They have flaws and, and deep needs. No two people are compatible because no two people intermarriage unbroken by sin. All of us are broken, all of us are in need, which means that among other things, we can't be self centered. To be self-centered is to fail from the very beginning. Making a good marriage is hard. Making a good marriage is maybe one of the hardest things we do in life. It's harder than athletics. It's harder than artistic prowess. It's harder than most anything. You know, raw talent will not put you on the NBA court. Raw talent Those things, that type of skill, takes enduring discipline and enormous work to get there. Now, I want to ask you, why would it be easy then to live lovingly and well with another human being in light of what's so profoundly wrong with every one of us? What would be easy about that? People who have mastered athletics people who have gifted abilities in art have failed miserably at marriage. We're sinful human beings living in a sinful world. And the trouble is not with marriage as an institution. The trouble is with me. Trouble is with us as human beings. But marriage, even though it's hard, We can't discard it. It's too important. But it overwhelms us. So I want to ask you a question. What if? What if God designed marriage more to make us holy than to make us happy? What if? What if God made it that way? More to make us like Him than to make us happy. And by the way, as we are made like Him, we do become happy. Those two happen together. But that truth is the premise of a book called Sacred Marriage written by Gary Thomas. And he says in this book, yes, passion, yes, fulfillment, yes, excitement, yes, romance. All those things are good, but good marriages work hard At these things and a good marriage really any marriage can't survive on these things alone passion excitement fulfillment and romance God didn't create marriage merely for personal pleasure although there is that he didn't create marriage in order to populate the world Although that is important. He didn't create marriage for any of these things. His sole purpose was not to provide, his sole purpose was not to provide an, uh, a steady institution for the benefit of child rearing and the socialization of humanity, although that's important as well. But bigger than all of these things, bigger than all these things, God made marriage according to the Bible as a holy place, a holy place, a relationship that would proclaim his love to the world. There's an old rabbinical story about how the spot was chosen for God's holy temple. Now, this is just a story, and there's lots of other reasons that the temple was put in its place. But here's a story from rabbinic history. Two brothers worked on a common field, at a common field, and had a common mill. Every night when they finished their work, they divided the grain that they had produced, and each one took home their part, half each. One brother was single, the other one had a large family. The single brother, as he thought about the situation, decided that his married brother with all his kids really needed more grain than he did. So each night in secret he crept over with a portion of the grain that he had taken home and left it at his brother's granary without telling his brother. The married brother realized that the single brother didn't have anyone because he wasn't married. He didn't have any children to care for him in his old age. And so he concerned about his brother's future, got up every night and secretly took some of the grain that was his portion and deposited it in his brother's granary. One night, the two brothers met halfway and his brother realized what the other was doing. They embraced each other. And as the story goes, God witnessed what happened and said, this is a holy place, a place of love. This is where I will build my temple. I think that that story pictures the place that God made marriage. That's what marriage is. It's a holy place. It's a holy place that that lets God's love be made known to people. It's a sight. It's a relationship. Where God proclaims his love. In Scripture, that's what it says about marriage. Scripture talks of marriage in the in, I mean, yeah, talks of marriage as the intimate relationship between the bride, God, and his groom. I mean, the bride, the church, and the groom, God the Father. For example, in Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Jesus called himself the bridegroom, you know that. And when he talked about the kingdom of heaven, he pictured the kingdom of heaven as a wedding banquet. And then at the culmination of human history, according to the book of Revelation, it describes that when all is finished, we will all gather at the wedding feast of the Lamb. The bride, God's church, and the groom, the Lamb. The bride has made herself ready. Reconciliation really is the highest aim of marriage. And that's what God is all about, reconciliation. A married couple displays although imperfectly, never quite right, but they display the commitment of God for His church and His church for God. That's what marriage is about. Paul talks about this, you know it, in Ephesians chapter 5, in that beautiful chapter where he talks about marriage, and he quotes this verse from Genesis in the first account of the first marriage. And this is in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. Paul says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Isn't that interesting? Paul is talking about marriage, but he says, no, but this is a picture of Christ and the church. This is a mystery, he says. It's an extraordinary wonderful, profound truth that can only be understood with the help of the Spirit of God that husbands' love for their wife is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And the church's love for Christ is pictured in the wife's love and desire for her husband. That's what Paul is saying. It's a mystery. It's, it's a pattern that shows and displays God's love. God's love for us and our love for Him. So we need to ask ourselves, if the husband's love for his wife is patterned after Christ's love for us and the wife's love is patterned after our love for God, what, what did Jesus do? What did He do for us? Think of it for a moment. He gave himself up for us. Jesus, the one who was equal with the Father, gave up his glory, gave up his place, gave up everything, and took on human nature, but not just human nature. He also willingly went to the cross, to death, to pay the penalty for my sin, for my hope, for my salvation, for yours, so that My guilt could be removed. My condemnation could be taken away so that I could be united with Him and take on His nature. That's what God did for me in Jesus Christ. God gave up. God gave up His glory. God gave up His power. God gave up His honor and became a servant. He died to His own interests and looked at our needs and interests. Instead, and husbands, That's what you're called to do for your wife. Jesus' sacrificial service has brought us into union with God. And that, says Paul, is the key to understanding marriage and the key to living marriage as God would have us. Here's how one commentator put it. He said, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. Interesting, isn't it? This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. Essentially, God had the gospel in mind when he made marriage. Therefore, you have to say, marriage only works to the degree that a couple relate to each other with the same self-giving love that God relates to us in Christ. Do that for your spouse as God did for you in Christ. Do that and everything else will follow. Everything else will follow the greatest good in marriage, the most joyous ambition is to live God's love for you, His acceptance for you, His reconciliation for you. Live that in marriage and in every relationship that you have. Live that relationship as a picture of God's love for you. Or as Paul says in another place, I like this, Second Corinthians 5 verse 9, so we make it our goal to please Him, God. So the first question I should ask myself before doing anything is, will this be pleasing to my Creator? Will this be pleasing to Jesus Christ? Will what I'm doing honor Him? The first purpose in marriage, you could say, the first purpose in marriage, beyond happiness, beyond sexual expression, beyond childbearing, beyond companionship, beyond mutual care, beyond provision, beyond anything else, beyond anything in marriage, in any relationship, is does this please God? Am I pleasing God in my actions? Rather than asking, is this going to make me happy? Ask, will this make god happy is this pleasing god paul underscores this same thought a few verses later in second corinthians 5:15 when he says those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again there it is right there we don't live for ourselves that is christianity I owe it to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. I owe it to Jesus to live for Him, to make my consuming passion and the driving force of my life to honor Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him in all that I do. And that's what marriage is about. Marriage isn't about me. My relationships are not about fulfilling my desires. The reason marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it's a reflection of the good news, the gospel, which is at one time both wonderful and painful. The gospel is this. I'm more sinful and more flawed than I ever dared believe. That's the gospel. That's painful. But it's also that at the same time, I am more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than I could ever hope for. That's the gospel. That's the wonderful part. It's hard, it's painful, and it's wonderful. And that's what marriage is about. That's what relationships are about. You know, there's something wonderful about standing under the boughs of a tree that's 700 years old. One of the favorite places For the Kinney family historically has been in the Mount Rainier National Forest where you can stand in the beauty of old growth fir, spruce, and cedar trees. It's inspiring. I just love that place. The trees on the western slope of the Cascades survive longer than many places. And it's due to a number of reasons, but it could be said that mainly it's because the forests are so wet that when lightning strikes, it causes fewer fires. It could be said, that that's the case. They've studied it. A traditional forest, if left alone, would face a lightning strike maybe every 50 or 60 years. But in this part of the Cascades, although lightning strikes just as often, a fire only erupts every couple hundred years. Lightning strikes come, but they're not devastating, devastating because the trees have had time to take root and draw deep and to grow. I think that's a good picture of marriage. It's a good picture of marriage. Every marriage at one time or another will be struck by lightning. Sexual temptation, communication problems, frustrations unrealized expectations, all those things just are like lightning. But if marriage is heavily watered with an unwavering commitment to please God in everything, to please God in everything, and to love each other like we are loved by God, then the conditions are right and ripe that a lightning strike will not create necessarily a devastating blow. So, what do we do? What do I need to make marriage work? What do I need to make relationships work? I need, according to God's Word, I need to know the mystery. I need to know the secret. I need to know the gospel, the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is available to all of us today, right now, in Christ. And that is also where I get the power that I need and the pattern that is so essential for my relationships, for marriage. And it's true also that marriage will show that to me. (laughs) Marriage will show it to me. It will show me It has shown me how much I need God. Marriage has shown me how much I need His strength. Marriage has shown me how much I need His transforming power and daily renewal. And the good news is that God's love is unconditional, unconditional for me and will help me to experience deeper and deeper union with my spouse and every relationship as life goes on in Christ let's pray Father in heaven thank you for this great ideal that you've placed for us the good news is not merely an illustration the good news your saving grace for us in Jesus Christ is life and hope and future for us. But with that good news, we are empowered, we are equipped, and we have a pattern for how we can do every relationship, but in particular, our relationship with our spouse. So Lord, today, I pray that you will equip and strengthen and empower every one of us. Forgive us, Lord, for our failings. Forgive us for our shortcomings. Bless us with wisdom and insight and power and strength that we can live that good news in our relationship with our spouse, loving them like you love us. And thereby bring honor and glory and witness to you and to this world until you come back. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.